Hey, welcome to an episode of Crippled by Culture, where we talk about everything in life and relate it to the disability and chronically ill community. My name is Sean Gold, and I'm an author, advocate, and nonverbal public speaker for the disabled community. To provide a quick visual description for accessibility, I'm a black man with a white tracheostomy breathing tube in my neck. I am wearing a red shirt. Next to me is the voice you hear speaking for me. This video is of a Zoom call with me and the person talking for me in one box, and my guest is in another box next to it. Today, I would like to thank Adam Ross for being my voice in this episode. In this episode, we are talking about the intersections of disability, fandoms, harmful versus helpful disability representation, and pop culture. Y'all, I can't explain how excited I am about this conversation. I know a lot about being on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, just going hard for your favorites. You want the followbacks, the trends, making lifelong friendships in the, in the family, or fan base, all of it. Before we get any further into the interview, I want to give a shout out to our partnering nonprofit festival for the series, Festability. As a board member, I helped put together a wonderful event in St. Louis at the Missouri History Museum. We had so many activities and vendors set up all over with an amazing headliner for our main stage. Getting to do this event was a dream come true. It is the best event in St. Louis to celebrate your disability unapologetically. Make sure you come out later this year. More information will be available soon. Thank you Festability for sponsoring the series. Now, back to the show. Now, let's go to today's amazing guest. As I can tell, it's going to be enjoyable. Nico Myring will eventually grow up and get a real job. Until then, he is an award-winning disabled advocate and a member of the National Disability Mentoring Hall of Fame. As a founding member of the Diversability Leadership Collective, which I now love, Nico lives in Philadelphia, where he served on the Mayor's Commission for People with Disabilities and hosts a pop culture podcast called Ask Me, Fandom and People with Disabilities with Steve Williams. Thank you for being here today, Nico. How are you doing? Would you mind giving a visual description of yourself, please? Of course. Hi, everyone. Sean, thank you for having me on this podcast. My name is Nico Meyering. <laughs> for a visual description, I'm a white man with parted blonde hair, uh, blue glasses. I'm wearing a red flannel shirt, and I'm seated in front of a purple background with a full bookcase off to one side. I'm honored to be here. Thanks, Sean. I appreciate that. <clears throat> First, do you identify with having a disability or chronic illness? If so, do you mind sharing what disabilities or chronic illnesses you have? Of course, I am a disabled man. What I have is called congenital central hypoventilation syndrome, or CCHS. CCHS 
is an ultra rare nervous system condition where most dramatically our automatic impulse to breathe is entirely absent. And this is important because breathing is just a little bit important to continued life functions, right? So for the first six or seven years of my life, I had a tracheotomy as well. But as I grew older, I kind of realized that I wanted to take my vent ventilation needs in a different way. So now I'm vented mainly through a face mask, like a, a BiPAP machine. So it's similar to uh, if you or anyone out there uses a CPAP machine, uh, but BiPAP is a bit more involved. Because CCHS is a nervous system condition, it impacts your life and your bodily functions in a number of ways. Your body's nervous system is a little bit like the US Congress, right? It has a little bit of influence in pretty much everything that you do. So people like me with CCHS may have trouble with temperature regulation, may have trouble with our vision. Uh, we can be more at risk for neural crest tumors um, and other complications as well. So there's mild forms of CCHS and there's more serious forms of CCHS. But regardless, everyone with CCHS is pushing forward to find better treatments, new treatments, and eventually a cure for our shared diagnosis. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, there's only about 2,000 of us. So there's not lots of profit incentive for biopharma companies, biomedical companies to do more research or make new treatments. Uh, we're often in the business of having to educate our own doctors, which a lot of disabled people can also sympathize with. So even though we have what's called an orphan disease, we are banding together to make a brighter future for young kids with CCHS. As I like to say, all we've got is all we've got. How old were you when you got diagnosed? Do you feel like there are other things going on that you feel are not diagnosed? Okay, so like most people with CCHS, I was diagnosed shortly after birth, right? So I was born in 1988, and uh, as I was coming into the world, it was very obvious right away that something was going on with me. Um, I was holding my breath. I was having blue spells. I wasn't breathing on my own automatically. Uh, so pretty much right after birth, I had to have that emergency tracheotomy. And I can only imagine how difficult that must have been for my mother, for my father, um, and for the doctors who were part of my very first care team. In the late 1980s, when I was born, there wasn't a lot of knowledge about CCHS, even less than there is now. And um, perhaps as Sean can uh, support, you know, ventilators back then were huge, clunky things, very loud, very noisy, tough to carry around. It's incredible 
how far we've come with ventilator technology and vent equipment. And conversely, how far we've come with monitoring equipment for vitals that are important for people with CCHS, things like your SpO2, your heart rate, um, your blood pressure, and stats like that. In terms of other things going on, I think I'm not pursuing any other diagnoses, right? What I'm pursuing right now is ways to more fully integrate not only myself as a disabled man in society, but ways to more fully integrate all disabled people in society. You know, it's up to the individual disabled person how much they identify as being disabled, but what's true for all of us is that our disability plays a role in our life and it plays a role in how we navigate life, our lives, our shared experiences, and our shared spaces. Um, other aspects of CCHS that I grapple with, you know, when I had to get glasses as a young kid around age five or six, I did resist that mightily because when you're a kid and you're five or six years old, the mindset that you have isn't, you know, oh, it's okay to be different or, oh, it's okay to be unique, be myself. Um, kids at age five or six, they, they want to be just like every other kid. That's that's just a natural part of your development. And that's where you are in your development at that point in your life. That's why, you know, when your classmate in kindergarten says, oh, teacher, I need to go to the bathroom. All of a sudden, all your other classmates need to go to the bathroom too, because kids want to be together. So, you know, I had that first fight with my internalized ableism at that very young age, right? But you know, let's be very clear. I look great in glasses. So it wasn't a fight I should have been fighting. Are you mild or where we, where are you on the spectrum of CCHS? Sure. Excellent question. If you've seen one case of CCHS, you've seen one case of CCHS. We know from Italian researchers who uncovered the gene responsible for CCHS in the early 2000s that my mutation is on the more mild side. I need mechanical ventilation only during sleep and occasionally during times of illness, although I've gotten a lot better at monitoring my own health and taking precautions so that I don't need to be hospitalized as much. I don't need to be on the ventilator as much. Um, so while I am more mild, someone with a more severe case of CCHS, they might have certain comorbidities. Uh, we see a lot of people with CCHS and a gastrointestinal condition called Hirschsprung's disease. Um, we see also people with CCHS who are unfortunately 24-7 ventilator dependent and that you know creates more medical complications and it also creates more complications as those folks grow up and have to make decisions about what they're going to do with the rest of their lives. So um, 
those of us who are CCHS advocates, you know, we're trying to make a better world, not only for just mild CCHS cases or just more uh, serious CCHS cases. We want to make that better world for all CCHS cases. And there are unique challenges and unique opportunities in those spaces. How has the journey of inner acceptance um, been like when it comes to internalized ableism? This is a really good question, Sean, and I have to thank you for it. So I think my internalized ableism popped up for me in an early age in several ways. And typically those ways involved spurning um, treatments and strategies and skill building opportunities that perhaps would have really helped me, but which I turned down. For example, um, because I was using a tracheotomy at a very formative stage in my life journey, I had some vocal delays, some speech difficulties, right? So, um, for example, it took me a long time to get my R's correct, right? I didn't say round, I said wound. Um, I didn't say fart, I said sart, which was a little weird, right? None of my peers were making those same errors. So when I was presented with a chance to take speech therapy classes, um, I, was a little I was a little kid in kindergarten and the speech therapist came into my classroom and she walked up to me and said, hey, Nico, do you want to come hang out with me? And I knew what this staff member did. And I knew kind of that if I did go spend time with her and I was apart from my peers, that would mark me as, as different. At a stage in my childhood where I really didn't want to be different, or at least not any more different than I already was, right? So I was very lucky in a sense that a lot of my classmates didn't bat an eye about my uh, speech delays or about my tracheotomy um, or about the fact that I had a day nurse with me whose sole responsibility was to look after me, right? Um, we also see my internalized ableism a few years later when I was in first grade or second grade, and I had to uh, make peace with the realization that I, I did need prescription glasses, where, you know, I, I did have one weak eye, remarkably weak eye, that, you know, eye surgery didn't fully repair. And that was a real fight that my parents had with me to get me to wear my glasses on a regular basis. Um, and then we also see kind of my, my struggle for acceptance stalling because early on, I really didn't want to 
identify as a disabled person. Um, and I wasn't, I was also not really comfortable with, you know, my life or the daily ins and outs. So I took a lot of roundabout ways to define myself as anything other than a disabled kid, right? I would get involved with um, school plays. Later on in high school, I got involved with drama club or the school newspaper. And that's really how I wanted to be known. I threw myself headfirst into those opportunities and those activities because it was not only a safe social outlet for me, but it was a way that allowed me to get out of the house and to not be home. Because when I was home, I was really forced to confront the fact that, you know, I had these special medical needs that meant that I couldn't stay out terribly late. That meant that I couldn't really engage in rigorous physical activity that, you know, young kids and especially young boys wanted to get involved with. You know, if I was playing football with the guys and I got hit in the head and I got knocked out, you know, my body wouldn't breathe for me. So very quickly that could become a very serious situation. So I had entire units in gym class that I had to sit out or that I had to engage in an alternative plan, uh, individual education plan, right, an IEP. And that was cool because I got to do things like archery or bocce or track, but at the same time, you know, I wasn't with my classmates, I wasn't doing football, and being excluded really hurt. Um, it wasn't until uh, my early to mid-20s that I was really comfortable owning my identity as a disabled man. And it took further years still to realize that not only did my specific disability group need uh, advocates, need peer advocates, people to speak up, but the entire disability rights movement needed people to speak up. Not just me, not just Sean, not just you, Aaron, but ideally every disabled person should come to own their own voice, to speak with their own voice, to, you know, stand up for what they need and what they deserve. So that's my journey in a nutshell. I'm curious because I never want to get mine removed, but do you miss your trach and is your scar from your trach still noticeable? <laughs> so the only reason why I would miss my trach is because it did provide probably the best ventilation for me night after night. Um, I got my trach out once around age six or seven, as I mentioned. And then because I had moved probably prematurely to a face mask, um, it ended up deforming the bones in my face. It pushed out my chin and it pushed out 
my upper face, but the middle of my face where the face mask would rest night after night, that stayed pushed in. And I came to have a need for significant facial reconstructive surgery. That was why I had to get a temporary trach put back in, which was really scary for me because while I had that trach in again, um, I was nonverbal and I had to learn to um, speak using like rudimentary sign language uh, or just to have like a dry erase board by my bedside in the surgery ward. Um, I should say that there are CCHS adults my age and older who have chosen to keep their trach and that has provided like a lot of medical safety to them, uh, provided a better quality of life for them, and they have like absolutely no qualms about keeping it. And that is fantastic. I support their decision just as they supported my decision to not have it. So after that second tracheotomy was removed, I did go in and get like scar reduction procedure, but it's possible that we can still see it. Let's, let's see. So it's right here and and it's like slightly noticeable, just a little bit. Okay, yeah, I can I can get that. It's weird too because there's like some hair follicles there. It's just like really weird to be like showering or to see myself in the mirror and be like, oh, hair. As you know, any thirty-four-year-old body might have hair because humans are mammals. What do you think you've learned that stays with you on a daily basis from the disability community or a specific disabled person? So, as I've gotten to meet other disabled people, regardless of what diagnosis they have, or maybe they're self-diagnosed, uh, regardless of whether they have visible or invisible disabilities, and regardless of where they are on their disability journey, one thing that strikes me, one thing that is, I think, an overarching truth is that everybody in our community is doing the best they can with what they have. I firmly believe that talent is equally distributed. However, opportunity and resources sadly are not. But regardless, we're doing the best we can with what we have. I feel very lucky to meet other disabled people, to be a part of, of their story, either for a short while or a long while, and to hopefully, ideally, celebrate their wins with them. Now, your involvement in the disability community and fandoms. Which ones are you in? Oh, uh, how much time do you have? Um, I have to say that early on, um, fandoms were a place of refuge for me, right? I'm pretty medically stable right now, but as a kid, I, I wasn't. There was a situation where I had to be in the hospital for some reason. I was a young kid. 
and my father brought me a comic book. I think it was like a Tom and Jerry comic book, um, you know, very like cartoony violence, nothing like super hardcore. But I also grew up during the early 90s. And if uh, you, Adam, or if you, Sean, are like of that same age range, you might recall that the early 90s were a really great time to be a kid. We had the animated X-Men series on Fox New on Fox Kids, uh, the animated Spider-Man series too. I vaguely recall like an animated Fantastic Four and Iron Man series. Uh, we had Power Rangers as well. Um, you know, growing up and watching the X-Men was really cool because here were a group of people who were noticeably different, right? Who faced the same stigma that, that I found myself facing at times, but they found a community of each other. And rather than grow bitter and resentful, uh, they, they tried their best to make the world a better place for themselves, for uh, people unlike them, and just at large, right? And we can get into like philosophical differences uh, that present themselves in different X-Men stories, but that really, really struck home with me. Um, as I aged uh, around third or fourth grade, um, the Star Wars prequels were gonna come out. So George Lucas re-released episode four, five, and six, right? which helped a whole new generation get familiar with Star Wars before George Lucas rolled out episode one, two, and three. And maybe you love the prequels, maybe you don't. We can have that discussion if you want. Um, but you know, then and there again, there was a fandom. There was a community where it didn't really matter uh, if you were disabled, if you were non-disabled, uh, what, other demographics you were a member of, what mattered was, you know, your opinion on Star Wars and what your favorite movie was, who your favorite character was, what observations you brought to the table. Um, and this is all very powerful for me, right? Because, you know, in my own life, maybe I, I was a sick kid in a hospital bed, but you know what? Superman never gets sick. No one tells Batman when to go to bed, right? That was really, really powerful for me to see. And uh, those were some of my first modes of escapist fiction and escapist fantasy uh, that I came to really love. As an adult now, um, and I guess also as you see fandom taking off, becoming more organized and solidifying more as a community. You know, I, I have gotten the chance to go to uh, pop culture conventions and to speak at them as well uh, and to meet other disabled nerds, right, to, to use a phrase, uh, to gain their friendship, to get to work with them, to work alongside them and to see them develop not only as disabled people uh, getting, you know, either 
better health outcomes or better like emotional health outcomes, but also seeing them develop as public speakers and as keen pop culture critics. So, I mean, I love it. I'm never going to stop being a nerd. I was born in 99, by the way. Okay. Have you ever noticed? (laughs) Have you ever been noticed, followed, or communicated with uh, one of your favorite influencers or celebrities? Okay. So, one of my big fandoms is a little known anime series called Digimon. Um, Digimon is a little like Pokemon in the sense that, you know, there's young people who form bonds with monsters and they team up and they fight evil. Um, but the Digimon anime, um, was really cool. And I watched season one, season two and season three, um, years, years later, right? I got to actually meet one of the original voice actors on Digimon. And um, we've talked on Twitter. I took a picture with him. He autographed some art that I have here. And like, as a 34 year old man, I felt kind of bad spending money on this, but then I was like, I only really have one life to live and I deserve to go all out. So why not? Um, Also, I should add voice acting as a job and as an industry is very, very grueling and uh, kind of demanding. So if these voice actors can make extra money by going to conventions and taking photos with their fans, like, more power to them. They have bills to pay. Um, I also met Edward James Olmos once from Battlestar Galactica. That was pretty cool. Um, Ooh, and I met the original Black Power Ranger from Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, who is also a very nice guy. A lot of my generation really values being recognized by them, Uh and I feel like a lot of the older generation don't understand the importance of it. Why do you think it is important? So as I've gotten older and I've had the opportunity and frankly, the free time, right? Because not everybody has free time to rewatch some of my old favorites. I'm seeing more the deeper themes at play within some uh, nerd media, right? Uh, Digimon is about a group of children who all exemplify one individual trait, courage, friendship, love, kindness, reliability, hope, light, so on and so forth. And they team together with their monster friends to become something better, something more than if they had stayed apart. So Digimon, on a surface level, yeah, is an escapist fantasy about, you know, 
kids finding monster friends and saving the real world and the digital world. But on a deeper level, it's about how we're stronger together. We're better together and how we are our best selves when we lead with our best qualities, right? And that's why I think our earliest fandoms, our earliest franchises tend to stay with us. And it's also just cool to, you know, see the voice actors who embodied our favorite fictional characters kind of grow up alongside us, right? So, for example, um, I'm a big anime fan. I grew up as a young teen in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. I was like 12 or 13, and I was watching all that old school Toonami, right? Dragon Ball Z, Gundam Wing, Yu Yu Hakusho, Inuyasha, Cowboy Bebop, Trigun, um, a whole bunch of stuff like that. And a lot of the voice actors who were in one show often were in other shows as well, right? It makes sense because, like, although they were different series, they were all done through the same studio. So um, I would watch um, Dragon Ball Z and I would recognize voices from Yu Yu Hakusho or from Fruits Basket or whatever. And it's wonderful to, you know, encounter those same people 20 years later to see them at a different stage in their life. You know, maybe they're married now, having kids, um, maybe they're, you know, going on to bigger and better roles and they've uh, come back and done this nostalgia tour for themselves, for the fans. It's just really cool to see because although the one thing that stays the same is that everything changes, it's also true that nostalgia is a very powerful factor. Did that fuck you up knowing they were the same actors? <laughs> Did that fuck me up? Um, a little bit. If I were to go back, right, and watch some very old Dragon Ball Z episodes, and then to come back 20 years later and watch Dragon Ball Super episodes, um, for those of you not in the know, Dragon Ball Super is the sequel series to Dragon Ball Z, um, then I can tell a difference, right? But if I were to watch them apart and to give them, you know, the same distance, then I wouldn't really be able to tell. It's not a disruptive sensation. It's not something that fucks me up or fucks with me. It provides me a sense of comfort, right? Because it, it gives a sense of stability. I think uh, the world can turn, you know, I can take a different job, I can move to a different city, but uh, the voice of Goku is always going to be Sean Schemmel, and the voice of Vegeta is always going to be Chris Sabat, um, 
or the original Green Power Ranger is always going to be Jason David Frank, right? And that's that's really cool. Why do you think it is important to have disabled celebrities like Ali Stroker and Stevie Wonder in the spotlight? So, I'm reminded of a very smart quote that says, we cannot be what we cannot see. You might be out there thinking, wow, Nico, that's a really good quote. And I agree, it is, but I didn't come up with it. Um, it's important to have disabled celebrities in the spotlight to show that disabled people can be successful and disabled, right? We don't need to reject our disabled identities in order to be successful, in order to be productive, in order to make a difference. You know, we can be disabled and role models at the same time. Uh, we can be disabled and filthy rich at the same time. I'm not sure how much Stevie Wonder brings in. It's probably more than I make. So I imagine Mr. Wonder's fairly well off. It's also a sign to other disabled talent that they can make it. And they can make it without making apologies for themselves and without denying a, an aspect of their identity, an aspect of their identity which might be fairly prominent, right? So there is that. I mean, think about even uh, disabled actors who might portray non-disabled roles, right? Uh, maybe you watch House of the Dragon Maybe you uh, know that Patty Considine, who plays Viserys Targaryen, um, is a man with, with autism. And that was really cool to see because uh, Mr. Considine um, is fairly open about being autistic and he makes no apologies for it. And then he's also like in some really gnarly makeup, right? And really cool costumes ruling um, Westeros and sitting on the Iron Throne. So that's my long-winded answer. Knowing that a lot of the SpongeBob actors did multiple characters in the same cartoon series yes. did mess me up a lot. Yes, yes. Um, in, in the Dragon Ball franchise, mm -hmm. the guy who voices Vegeta, Chris Sabat, also voices Piccolo, Yamcha, um, Mr. Popo, and a few other roles as well. And that was, that was really interesting. But it makes sense because, you know, you don't get paid a lot as a voice actor. So you're taking lots of roles. You're taking all the roles that you can. Um, and also, like, dubs of anime series and uh, production of anime series, that doesn't happen on a huge budget. It tends to happen on a pretty shoestring budget, especially back then. What factors have been harmful in disability representation when roles for disabled people are given to able-bodied actors? So 
I tend to think that the opposite of disability is not able-bodied, right? The opposite of disability is simply non-disability. I'm trying to get better at, if I call myself a disabled man, then someone who isn't disabled, I wouldn't refer to them as an able-bodied man. I might just refer to them as a non-disabled man, right? And I do this because I'm trying not to uh, convey a sense inadvertently that I'm less able or of a different level of able simply because I have a diagnosis that someone else might not have. I think the harm that is done when a non-disabled actor takes a disabled role is that we might see a portrayal that is not informed by disabled experience, right? And we might see a portrayal that runs quite counter to what disabled reality is. There are some roles out there that cannot feasibly um, um, be done by someone with that same disability. For example, uh, Matt Murdock in Daredevil in the Marvel shows, right? Uh, Matt Murdock is a fictional character who becomes the superhero Daredevil because even though he loses his sight and he becomes a blind man uh, as a result of a childhood accident, his remaining senses are heightened, right? His sense of smell is great. He can smell your fear. His sense of hearing is fantastic. He can hear your heartbeat. Uh, his sense of touch is really great. He can run his hands over a brick wall and judge by gouges in the brick whether there's been uh, bullets there, whether that's new construction, old construction, what have you. The actor who plays Matt Murdock in the Marvel franchises is uh, Charlie Cox. And Charlie Cox is um, someone who is not blind. Um, but, you know, it's not like uh, a blind actor could pull off those stunts, could um, embody that role, right? So there is that caveat. But ultimately, another harm that is done is that you know, there is disabled talent out there. There are disabled performers, actors, actresses, singers, what have you, who could use that exposure, who would do a lot for those roles, and who, I have no doubt, would absolutely knock them dead. Uh, but they don't, they don't get that opportunity, right? Because uh, someone else takes that role. Unfortunately, that, that is what happens. Yeah, I know Cord Overstreet has dyslexia. Lauren yeah. Potter has Down syndrome. Marley Matten is, Matlin is deaf. Yes. Um, I'm trying to remember. Um, are there exception, exceptions? Like, what is the fine line between acting and authenticity of having a disabled actor? So this is a really good question, Sean. My hat is off to you. 
and it's not a question I was anticipating. I'm reminded of the actor R.J. Mitz. Not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, but he uh, portrays Walt Jr. in Breaking Bad, right? Um, so the actor and I think the the character both have cerebral palsy, but the actor uh, R.J. actually um, navigates that disability pretty well. And he hadn't needed to use as many mobility aids or mobility devices as his character did. So he had to like exaggerate his symptoms or exaggerate his medical need on camera, right? And this is what I think of when you ask me this question. This is that fine line. And I recognize why this had to happen, right? Because uh, when Walter White sees the ableism, the discrimination that his son goes through simply for walking a bit differently, speaking a bit differently, uh, this compounds his sense that life is not fair. And it is part of the impetus for Walter White to go from Walter White chemistry teacher to Walter White crystal meth manufacturer. Does that make sense? It's admittedly been a long time since I watched Breaking Bad, but this is the example I can think of. I would rather an exaggeration than a non-disabled person do it, besides Kevin McHale from Glee. Okay. I see you in that. Valid. Yeah. This past summer, the disabled community had to discuss ableist lyrics that were used by Beyonce and Lizzo. Yes. What were your true initial thoughts about it? So I'm not sure that my thoughts on this matter on this matter really matter, right? Because I'm not someone who has the disability that was referred to in those lyrics. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a white man and it, I'm not sure that I have any insight into what it's like um, being a black performer, right? Um, to be honest with you, I don't even really listen to much music by Lizzo or much music by Beyonce. I know, shoot me now. Um, I tend to go much more for like lo-fi and vaporwave stuff. My thoughts on the matter were only that we should center the voices of disabled black people in that conversation um, and disabled people who um, had the disability, have the disabilities rather, that were referenced in those lyrics. And I'll simply close by recognizing that um, both Lizzo and Beyonce took pretty quick action, I think, to, to change those lyrics and to consciously do better, which is fantastic. Um, I don't think anybody in the disability community is insisting that everybody get everything right all the time, right? Humans are by nature imperfect, but we always seek progress rather than perfection. And that's, I think, what we saw. 
I'm eager to hear your thoughts, Sean, if you want to share. It was a complicated fine line and I was just annoyed every way because no one was listening and everyone just had uninformed bullshit opinions. An informed bullshit opinion. That's an excellent phrase. Yeah. Unin oh, uninformed. Uh, Unin okay. Bullshit opinions. Um, how does it feel to be an award-winning advocate? So, it's nice, right? I don't think that anyone would say, oh, I hate having awards. Um, but while I don't do what I do for the awards, I find that having the award opens doors for me and that it lends a certain, like, credibility, gravitas, significance, whatever you want to call it, to whatever I have to say. Um, ultimately, you know, when I'm invited to a new organization or when I get involved with a new group, um, when I'm invited to the proverbial table, right, one thing that I try to do is bring extra chairs along, right, because if you've met one disabled person, you've met one disabled person. Uh, disability, you know, it has no one experience. Disability has no one culture. And ultimately, the only way that we're going to, that we're really going to see the full picture of disability is if we talk to multiple disabled people, right? Um, and I also try to be cognizant of the fact that yeah, I'm disabled, but at the same time, I'm a I'm a white man. I'm I'm cisgender. Um, you know, I didn't grow up really rich, but my parents made sure I had a very stable upbringing. Uh, so I do have lots of privilege in those ways. Granted, uh, you know, I still do have this life-threatening, ultra-rare disability. So it's kind of like saying, aside from the shooting, Mrs. Lincoln. How did you like the theater? But I want to bring that perspective to it as well. Um, I'm honored to have won the awards that I did. I'm honored to be recognized in the societies that I'm in. Uh, and my sincere hope, the reason that I do what I do, is that I want the next disabled generation's floor to be my ceiling, right? Whatever I achieve in this life, I want the next generation to go above and beyond. How many awards do you have? And do you have any with you to show off today? So this is a good question. I don't have any awards on me currently. Um. I'm peering around my room now, seeing if I have anything. Um, but I will talk about kind of what my experience has been. Um, I was honored to be inducted into the National Disability Mentoring Hall of Fame 
as a member of the class of 2020. Um, I was nominated by my good friend, the late Alec Frazier, um, who was a guy that I met, you know, in the early 2010s at some very small upstate New York Comic Con. Uh, and we kept that friendship going for years, you know, until his unexpected and early death. Um, Alec's loss hit me very hard because he had so much more to offer, right? And ultimately, what not what what non-disabled people tend to not understand about disabled life is that we don't have the safety nets that they do. We don't have all the supports that they do. If we have a medical emergency, it's much easier and more likely for us as disabled people to have that emergency become life or death. And it's much more likely for us to not receive the medical care that we need to save our lives. So uh, I was in a situation where Alec had nominated me for the Hall of Fame, but he didn't live to see me inducted. Uh, so that was, the induction ceremony was a bittersweet moment. I'll give you that. I was honored to, you know, have a chance to speak at that event uh, to commemorate my friend. Um, and then later on to help his family pack up his things, you know, because he left a lot behind. Um, Alec left us in early 2021. And in late 2021, I set up something called the Fraser Fund, uh, which helps disabled people uh, afford membership dues into uh, disability rights organizations, right? So I recognize that a lot of disability rights groups, you know, they collect membership dues because they need operating capital. But at the same time, you know, disabled people uh, tend to not have those uh, levels of revenue, tend not to have financial stability all the time. So if I could use the Fraser Fund to spot them that money to help reduce that cost barrier, you know, that's something that I feel honored to do. And that matters almost more to me than any award I could win, any recognition I could receive. I'm so sorry for that loss. Thank you, I am too. Why do you think it's important for celebrities and influencers to start recognizing disabled fans specifically, and how can they cater specifically towards the disabled community so that we can feel included? Sure. So celebrities should embrace their disabled fans for the same reason 
that businesses should embrace disabled employees and disabled customers. Because let's face it, Sean, I know a lot of disabled nerds. Uh, if you're a celebrity out there and you have a bunch of disabled nerds in your fan base and you ignore them, that's ultimately doing yourself a disservice, right? It, it just is. There are ways that celebrities can accommodate their disabled fans, whether that's through holding virtual meet and greets rather than in-person meet and greets at uh, pop culture conventions. Uh, maybe it's meeting with fans during quiet hours. Uh, I've been to a lot of cons. I don't know any cons that have instituted like quiet hours for people with sensory disorders um, or like light sensitivity, noise sensitivity, uh, people who might get overstimulated, so on and so forth. It would be a good idea to institute these things. Um, I do see, parenthetically, conventions having like quiet rooms or quiet areas, but I feel that more could be done in that space. One thing that I have seen more recently in pop culture conventions that wasn't as widespread when I began speaking at them is the use of sign language interpreters. So I was, for example, I was speaking at Anime NYC 2021, which was held in November 2021 in New York City. I was doing a panel with two other disabled nerds about uh, disability representation in different anime series. And our panel had two sign language interpreters. And they actually like, they switched off, which was really cool. I imagine that if you're a sign language interpreter, it might be like very tiring to have to interpret and sign at a fast rate and to keep up with speakers, right? So I appreciated that there were two interpreters for that event. And I also see more uh, programming at panels that are centered or is centered around disability. I was speaking at AwesomeCon 2022 about uh, examining X-Men through a disability analysis lens. And um, me and my co-panelist, Steve, who I mentioned earlier, did a really great job. And the speakers who came after us were also speaking about um, disabled superheroes. And when I started speaking about disability in comic books or disability in superhero media, that wasn't something that we saw, right? I don't view these other speakers as competition. I view them as part of our community. I view them as allies. Um, you know, it's, it's great if I achieve a goal and if I am successful. But what's best is if we all succeed together. That's the money shot right there. And that's what I'm trying to get to, a place where we can all succeed. I would love that and make tickets cheaper, but it has.
to be a way that non-disabled fans don't lie and just get the cheaper VIP tickets. I don't know how that could be done. I see you in that. I concur. Um, ticket prices, especially for the major Comic-Cons like San Diego Comic-Con, New York Comic-Con, uh, that gets cost prohibitive. Yeah. And there should not in any fandom, you know, nerd fans, nerd fandom or otherwise, there should not be a price point that acts as a barrier to entry, right? Tell me about leading patient advocacy, advocacy groups. What sure. do you do? So <clears throat> I'm in a unique position because I grew up in a patient advocacy group. Um, the patient advocacy group for the CCH, for people with CCHS is the CCHS Family Network. It is that organization that my mom started when I was a young kid, right? So I was there for every step of the way at every stage in our evolution from a small, community group staying connected through like monthly paper newsletters sent through the post service to a large federally recognized nonprofit with uh, an Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, and all that stuff. When we lead patient advocacy groups, we get a front row seat at how diverse our patient base is, right? So not only in terms of how severe our CCHS is, but how the different factors of our life play into our disabled experiences. Uh, I do think that diversity is a great strength not only on an individual level, but also organization-wide. Uh, but it does mean that in our patient advocacy groups, we need to be cognizant of people's resources, people's time, uh, and people's privileges. It makes a real difference whether you are a family living in a major city or a family living in a rural area when you or your child has a rare disability, has an orphan disease, has CCHS. It makes a huge difference when you have CCHS or your kid has CCHS and you are middle class, um, upper class, or you're just scraping by. It makes a lot of difference if you come from a, a two-income household, a one-income household, or if, if you don't have steady income, right? All of these factors and more inform how we strategize our patient advocacy groups, how we form our organizational goals, and ultimately, how we operate and how we engage our members, what we want to do, what we need to do is create ways 
for everyone to engage, create ways for everyone to have their voice heard, and to create an organization where everyone does matter, everyone is valued, and everyone is seen for the skills, talent, and perspective that they bring. One of my favorite parts of being in the CCHS Family Network is getting to see um, my peers with CCHS grow up and develop as people, develop as professionals, uh, and to engage with them first as kids, uh, then as teens, following through to young adults, and now just to being adults. Like, I had a realization fairly recently that, you know, I'm going to be 35 next April. And I think at that point, I can safely remove myself from the title young adult, right? I'm not a young adult anymore. I'm just an adult. What do you call someone who keeps their own budget, holds down a job, uh, you know, never really gets enough sleep and maintains their own life? You call that an adult. So that's how I've engaged with patient advocacy groups in my own life. That's the benefit that I get from being in a patient advocacy group. And those are the goals that I carry as I engage with other disability rights groups and other patient advocacy groups. Tell me about your podcast. What is it about and how long have you been doing it? So when the pandemic hit, I made a pact with myself, right? That when I was invited to a speaking engagement uh, or when I applied to a speaking engagement, I wouldn't ever do it alone if I could help it, right? There are some speaking engagements which are like just for one person, so I recognize that. But by and large, if possible to bring others along, I try to do that. There came a point in time where I presented at AwesomeCon 2021, uh, just talking about uh, how disabled fans fit into fandoms. And the fact that fandoms have always been not just a source of escapist fantasy for disabled people, but places and communities where disabled people can find belonging can find value, and can find worth outside of their disabled identities. And one of the guys that I gave this talk with approached me afterward. His name was Steve Williams. And he was like, hey, have you ever thought about doing a podcast? And I was like, well, I mean, it really seems like in the early 2020s, you know, everybody our age has a podcast. It almost seems like I might wake up one day with a podcast, much in the same, but much in the same way that you might wake up one day with a bad cold, right? Not even asking for it. 
So Steve was like, well, you know, come on my podcast, uh, talk a little bit about uh, comic books or whatever you want to talk about. See how it feels for you. See how it fits. And let's do this for as long as, you know, as long as there's gas in the tank. So that ultimately became Ask Me, uh, fandom and people with disabilities. So Steve handles all of the like tech components, the recording components, and I kind of just get to show up and uh, talk about, you know, whatever we're talking about at the time. I'll be honest with you, Sean, I thought like maybe we would have six episodes at the most, but here it is a year later and we're still going and we crank out episodes um, pretty, pretty much weekly, I would say. Um, we are, you know, living in a geeky golden age, let's say, where there's more often than not uh, some new show, movie, event, comic book event that we can talk about. Um, so ultimately, you know, I didn't really go into having a podcast with a thought out plan or with an end goal in mind. Compared to my other disability initiatives, the podcast is really just, you know, me having fun. Uh, so I don't think it's ever going to be hugely popular. That's not really like my goal for the project. I don't think it's going to be ever monetized. Again, that's not really my goal. Uh, it's just a chance for me to hang out with a good friend of mine, someone with whom I've become quite close, um, and just be nerds. Goals. Goals, goals, goals. That's right. I still don't long. I still don't know how long this series will last, but I feel the same. No goals. Valid, valid. Was there anything else that you wanted to discuss today that we didn't touch on? You know, Sean, one thing about me is that I tend to get really invested in certain interests, right? I'm someone who goes down rabbit hole after rabbit hole after rabbit hole. So yeah, I'm a disabled man and I can talk at length about disabled experiences. And yeah, I'm a huge nerd and I can talk about, you know, having a baby Yoda doll or having a Chewbacca toy or, uh, you know, being 34 and still playing like Final Fantasy video games. But another aspect of me is that I'm really into local government management. Um, ultimately, the level of government that has the most influence on our daily lives is local government. So here in Philadelphia, I'm honored to sit on the Mayor's Commission for People with Disabilities. It's all disabled members, it's disability-led, uh, and we've managed to have a lot of victories 
as a group, right? So we've gotten to give our input as Philadelphia uh, begins to make a new budget for fiscal year 2024. We've gotten to give input into uh, Amtrak's new series of accessible train cars. Um, and I probably talked about this on the Diverse Ability Leadership Collective. So maybe Sean, you saw that. Uh, we've gotten to do a lot of cool stuff. Ultimately, this shows us that when we include disabled citizens in participatory democracy, our democracy, our government, our very way of life here in America becomes better, becomes necessarily more nuanced and becomes more effective because it meets the needs of more citizens. Every city in America, every town in America, every village in America should have a disability council. And depending upon the state that you're in, there's legal differences between what's a city, what's a village, and what's a town, which is why I draw that distinction. But I feel very passionate about government being accessible and accommodating for its disabled citizens. As we close, I want to show off my nerd cred in one very noticeable way. Hold on just a second. Uh, so this is my baby Yoda. And um, for those of you who need a visual description, baby Yoda is a small green toy alien with big dark eyes, uh, kind of a light green skin tone big goofy looking ears, and he's dressed in what looks like a burlap sack, kind of. Uh, this is Baby Yoda from The Mandalorian and from the Book of Boba Fett. Uh, so this is money well spent. And Baby Yoda lives with me here in my office. So that's my Star Wars nerd cred right on display. Thank you so much much for coming on and having this conversation with me. I hope you have enjoyed this as much as I did. I appreciate the insights that you provided as well. If people wanted to connect with you and support the work you do, where can they do so? So one benefit of having a name as unique as Nico Meyering is that I'm very easily findable on Google. But if you want to find me on Twitter or on Instagram, my handle is at name starts with N because mine does and the word name also starts with N. On LinkedIn, I'm just Nico Meyering. Uh, Sean, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for doing this podcast series. I can't wait to see what you do next and I'm rooting for you. Adam, thank you for helping out. It was a joy to make your electronic acquaintance as well. I will make sure to share everything in my description box below. Once again, I'm Sean Gold. Thank you for watching. Make sure you like, comment, all your thoughts, and subscribe.
I'll see you all next time on another episode of Crippled by Culture. Bye.